Scaled Up Nation, we are professional water treaters and we need to know what's in the water and the tools we use to analyze that water needs to be of the top quality. One of the tools that we use are dip slides to determine planktonic bacteria and fungi counts. Fluid Maintenance Solutions provides affordable, reliable, and quality dip slides. Fluid Maintenance Solutions can private label your dip slides with your company logo. Don't leave an empty box behind with your customer. Leave them a branded reminder of you and your company. Order before August 31st and pay only $14.95 per box of 10 count dip slides. Give Fluid Maintenance Solutions a call today at 405-612-7869 or go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash dip slides. Fluid Maintenance Solutions, quality dip slides you can count on. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. My name is Trace Blackmore, and of course, I am the host of your favorite podcast, Scaling Up H2O. And folks, it's my favorite podcast, too. I absolutely love this podcast for so many reasons. I get to meet so many people that are in the same industry that I am. More so, they love the industry the same way that I do. I get to learn more about this industry because of this podcast. And I really believe that this podcast helps the industry raise the bar across the board so we are all getting better. Another thing that I love about this podcast is I get to meet some of the people that wrote some of my favorite books. Now, Nation, I want to thank you for listening because I get to enjoy all of these things for one simple reason. You listen to the podcast. So thank you for doing that. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I love to read. I'm always looking for the next book to read or listen to. That's why I'm always asking my guests, what are their favorite books? What are they reading now? It's very selfish of me. I am looking to increase my reading book list, and that's my secret to you. That's how I do that each and every time. But I have shared on the show numerous times that I have a very busy workload, and I just don't have time to sit down and read a book. What I do have time for is when I'm driving to and from accounts, when I'm not listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, I use one of my favorite tools called Audible. Audible allows you to change your windshield time into learning time, and you can get a free book and a free month of Audible by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Audible. Now, that's an affiliate link, and what that means is without costing you anything more, Audible will pay me a small commission if you decide to sign up for the service. Audible is one of my favorite learning tools. Now, my guest today wrote a book that I actually own and I read the hard copy. I have it also on Audible and I freshened up on the book before I interviewed him by listening to Audible, but it is a really neat book. For anybody who is involved in the water industry, you want to read this book. The book is called The Big Thirst by Charles Fishman. Charles Fishman is an award-winning, best-selling author. In addition to The Big Thirst, he's written books such as The Walmart Effect, The Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life, and his most recent book, One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Nation, I love our space program, and One Giant Leap is a great read. It talks about the men and women that allowed us to actually make it to the moon. People that did things that you would not have even thought about, he writes about them. It is a great read, but we're not talking about that book today. We're talking about The Big Thirst. And today, we're going to be able to interview him about that. He is on the show, so please help me welcome Charles Fishman. 
My lab partner today is accomplished author Charles Fishman. Charles, thank you so much for joining us on Scaling Up H2O. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have the chance to talk to your audience. Charles, I have to tell you, I am a big fan of your books. I really enjoy the way that you write. As myself, I'm starting to write my first book, and I'm just curious. Give me a little taste of what your process is. Well, look, I'm an old-fashioned newspaper reporter. I got my start as a newspaper reporter, as it happens, at the Washington Post. Um, most people who get to the Washington Post don't go straight out of college. So that was a, a real privilege and a joy. I learned a lot as a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old and a 23-year-old from the people running the Washington Post. But I, my philosophy is really simple. Good reporting, more little stories, more little facts will save you when good writing won't. You can't make yourself write beautifully or compellingly. Sometimes you have a good day. Sometimes you have a good afternoon. Sometimes you don't. But what you can always do is have an incredible tale to tell, an incredible answers to interesting and incredible questions. You can always ask a few more questions. When I was a reporter, I made little red marks in my notebook. I'm still a reporter. I make little red marks in my notebook next to what I think of as the quote unquote good stuff, um, because I started out covering courthouses. And so you would, I would spend the whole day in court, and then I'd have to literally race back to the office um, at 5.05, and I had a story due at 6 or 6.15. And so I didn't have time to ponder what I was going to write. I had to have thought about it as I was going along, but I didn't want to miss the wonderful details. You sit in court for eight hours, and there might be three moments worth reproducing in the next day's newspaper. And as, a, as an author and a historian, I still do that. I certainly collect 10 or 20 times the amount of material that I can ever possibly use. But over the course of doing that, I'm very careful to mark the stuff that seems like it's going to be good and is definitely going to make it into the book. And I actually usually keep a separate file, which, which I, with great imagination um, and zaniness, call the good stuff file, chapter one, good stuff file, chapter three, good stuff file. And when I get ready to write a chapter, when I'm halfway through, when done, or when I think I'm done, I, I always go back to the list of stuff that I thought was really important to get in there. And it's amazing how often you forget some wonderful little moment or some wonderful little detail in, in the course of months and months and months of reporting, which is, which is what a book requires. So I am very careful to keep track of what seems to, to light me up when I learn it at the moment and not wait till later to mark it as something that's going to make it in the book. Now, in the end, even the good stuff, probably only half of it makes it in the book and people will just decide on their own whether what I write is worth reading or not. But that, that's how you make sure that you're getting the very best stuff in and not losing track of it. So that's, that's a tiny little window on, on my technique. I, I don't, I'm not inviting anybody to look over my shoulder via Skype, FaceTime while I work, however. Only my family uh, is party to that particular uh, mess. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing that. It, uh, it definitely does help. And uh, I've read a couple of your books. I don't think I've read all of them. I've read The Walmart Effect. I've read The Big Thirst, which is what we're going to talk about today. I understand you have a new book out called One Giant Leap. What am I leaving out? Well, One Giant Leap is the latest book about the race to the moon um, in the 1960s. And, and especially given the audience you've got of kind of water professionals, water engineers, water scientists, water practitioners, there's a surprising connection, you know. The story of Apollo, the story of going to the moon, the story of the United States, has been told probably a thousand times. Twelve men who walked on the moon have, between them, written 20 books. The part of the story that hasn't well told, believe it or not, is how we did it. How did we get to the moon? The part of the story that's very well told is the perspective of the astronauts. They seem, you know, if you're a, a historian or a journalist or somebody who writes about space, 
why wouldn't you tell it from the perspective of inside the spacecraft facing the control panel, right? That seems to be the exciting spot. That's been done a lot. But you know what's just as exciting? Actually, I, I found it even more exciting is the men and women back on Earth who had, who had to do the work to get the astronauts to the moon. And my book is a book about what it took to get Americans to the moon. I love math as well as writing, and I literally sit at a computer with a, a piece of scratch paper and a, and a calculator um, at hand at all times. And one thing I did was I added up the total amount of work it took to get America to the moon. Yeah, this many people working for this many years, this many hours a year. What, what, what did that look like? In all, Apollo astronauts spent 2,500 hours in space. They spent 2,500 hours taking off, flying, flying to the moon, landing on the moon, walking around, driving around in that really cool lunar dune buggy, flying home, splashing down. That 2,500 hours, that's about 100 days, believe it or not, a lot of time in space. For every one hour of Apollo spaceflight, one million hours of work was done back on Earth. What's a million hours of work? A typical overworked American will work 100,000 hours in an entire lifetime. For every one hour of spaceflight, literally the entire work lives of 10 people were required. Think about that for a minute. Imagine being allowed to do something for one hour that 10 people had worked their entire careers. They're all 75. They're getting ready to retire. Just going to give Trace his one hour after they've worked their entire lives to get ready for that one hour. And then the second hour comes and 10 more people have worked their entire lives to get you ready for the second hour. That is the level of intensity work back on earth that going to the moon required. And so that, to me, is why that was interesting. It's a story in which the astronauts are heroes. There's no question. But the astronauts are the first to tell you that the real heroes were back on Earth. The engineers and scientists and factory workers who, who invented what we needed to go to the moon and then built it. And inventing it was one thing, but it also had to be perfect because if anything went wrong between here and the moon, you were in trouble. So, so that's, that's the kind of story that the people who, who listen to your podcast, even though it doesn't seem like it's directly related, it may actually relate very well to sort of being the unsung heroes of whatever water system we're a part of. Well, I got to tell you, after that cell, I cannot wait to read the book. I mean, just to just to think about, and I've seen movies, I've read books, but but just to think about all the people that had to do so many things, and I've never thought about adding up the hours of that, but a million hours to produce one hour uh, of of space travel. I mean, that's just that's just incredible. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, and and some of the water folks may know, and some may not. The moon is considered a very dry place, at least in the conventional imagination. But in fact, on both, in both the North Pole and the South Pole, I'm not sure we have actually gotten uh, absolute evidence from the North Pole. But in the South Pole, as I understand it, there's not only water on the moon, there are iceberg-sized quantities of water in the moon. And they are collected in craters at the poles that that are so that are deep enough that the sun never shines on whole sections of those craters and literally there is water on the moon in the scale of icebergs so so the moon's not as dry as we once imagined it to be and that's if we ever set up bases on the moon we're going to be setting up bases a short trot from the from the iceberg size quantities of water because we're going to need that water for all kinds of things. So so the wa the moon will soon need water engineers get ready if that intrigues you. There you go. And I think that is a great segue uh, to your book The Big Thirst. So I'm curious, uh, there are probably a lot of members of the Scaling Up Nation that have read it. There's some that might not have read it. What is the book basically about, and then uh, why did you write it? The point of The Big Thirst, when I wrote it, was to capture a sense of what it looks like to face water problems and what it looks like to tackle them or fail to tackle them. And the book first came out in 2011, 
The paperback came out in 2012, and it's framed around a series of settings, um, Las Vegas, Nevada, Galveston, Texas, India, Australia, a series of places where there were big water problems and people either faced them and figured out how to solve them or refused to face them and failed to solve them. And I think both both cases are, are interesting because we're all going to face a lot of water problems. Um, and then there's a, a kind of a, a Fishman-esque special uh, chapter um, which is devoted to the economics of water. It's the last chapter before the um, the conclusion, and there there is a narrative arc to the book. But the the point of the economics chapter is really simple. Um, anybody who deals with water routinely in any setting, stormwater, wastewater, drinking water, water for farmers, water for agriculture, drought, flooding, the one thing that is clear is that water is underpriced. We do not charge enough for it. And if we fixed the price of water, we would fix most other things. And, and I felt like that was kind of an unspoken element of the, of the whole conversation around water and how to manage it. it, it for, for your audience, it's a book about water management, but no ordinary person wants to read a book about water management. A, a dozen colleges and universities have picked the Big Thirst as what they call their common read. They have assigned it over the summer to all incoming freshmen, a dozen colleges and universities, because it's written not aimed specifically at water managers, but aimed at ordinary people. Here's, here's what it looks like to face water problems. Here's what those problems look like. Here's what it looks like when you tackle them with a certain energy and imagination. Here's what happens when, when you fail to tackle them. So it's written in the style of a book. I mean, you, you've read it, so you, you can you can you can give your own review. But it's aimed at ordinary people. But but in fact, it's found a big audience among water professionals because, to be honest, people who manage water take pride in in their invisibility. They take pride in the invisibility of the water system, and the people who manage those water systems whatever spot in the system they sit in, they also take pride in kind of being below the radar screen. And the problem is that now we need water managers to talk to us, to explain what's going on, what are the challenges, what, what are the technical challenges, what are the engineering challenges, what are the financial challenges. And they, we need them to explain it in words we understand. And the truth is they don't know how to do it because they spend all their time running the water system. We've got three generations, four generations of water people who haven't really had to talk to the public. And now we're we have crises, water-related crises, almost everywhere in the world at some point in the next 20 years. And so the water professionals like the book because they could sort of steal ideas about how to talk about what's going on in their own community um, and, and, and try and make, and make it standable. So the goal of the book was to, the goal of the book isn't for you to turn to page 187 and say, right, I remember that. Let me solve that problem that way. It's not an engineering book. It's not a textbook in any way. It, it's designed specifically for people to read so that when, when communities have problems, they can say to themselves, you know what? I remember that we need to take this seriously. I read this book back when I was a sophomore uh, at Occidental College or the University of Florida, and I remember not the details, but I remember that we need to take it seriously. And so that's it's it's aimed at a general audience. It, every chapter is sort of filled with the stories of ordinary people and you know how they interact, how they work with water or fail to work with water, and and then there's the wonderful chapter called "It's Water, Of Course It's Free." We don't ever talk about how many copies of a book it sold. No one, no one except uh, what's her name, who who wrote the Harry Potter novels, talks about how many copies of the book sold. the The book is the best selling water book since Cadillac Desert by Mark Reeser. So it is. It is. It has, it has done very, very well, um, and it continues to sell, sell more copies every year than 95% of books ever sell. So it, is, it continues to be um, 
a, a book that's assigned in a lot of water and sustainability um, and engineering programs just as a way of getting people acclimated. Well, with all of the books that you've sold, whatever that number is, and it's hard to find people in my industry that have not read your book, what is the impact that you've seen? Well, look, it, it's not <laughs> it's not Harry Potter. So it's really hard with even a best-selling book to sort of say these three things in Nashville or these four initiatives in San Diego were the result of of, of a team of people reading the book. Like you, I, I meet lots of people in the world of water. I speak at water conferences all the time. Um, there's a water conference every summer in Milwaukee that I actually host and help organize the Water Leaders Summit. When the book first came out, one of the first places I was invited to speak was the Association of Large Municipal Water Utilities, the, the 30 or 40 largest cities in America have their own utility association. There's there's the big one, the AWWA, which is the association of all 52,000 water utilities in America. But the, the 40 or 50 biggest water utilities in the country supply water to some 60 or 70% of the people. And then there's the 50,000 other water utilities, many of which only have 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 customers. And I, I was invited by somebody who who I had spent time with um, in the course of reporting the book, I said, you know what, what in the world can I tell you guys about this that you don't are, like, I went to you to, to, to learn what I needed to learn to write the book. What can I tell you? And what she said was, we need to hear the message um, delivered in a way that you would deliver it. And also, it's always good to have an outsider talk to you about how the world looks you know, from your perspective. So those are the things we want you to talk about. So I think, I think the book has, has had a huge impact in two completely opposite corners. I think it has had a big impact with water managers because they really are in a unique position and a different challenge, which how do we talk about water problems to the public? Most, m- most of the last 60 years, no one in the water utility world has ever had to deal with having a conversation with their quote-unquote constituents. It works. Water's pretty inexpensive. You know, most Americans, I, I was struck recently, we, we had to get a new microwave oven, and, and the new microwave oven is programmed so that if there's a power failure, the the letters PF come up where the time was. So somewhere in China, people who design microwave ovens have figured out that the power goes off in America Often enough, whatever, briefly, every four four weeks, 10 times a year, there's a power failure here in Washington, D.C. for 40 seconds or two minutes or 15 minutes that you want the microwave oven to report that there was a power failure and that's why the time is wrong. Most Americans will reach the end of their lives without ever, ever turning on the water in the bathroom or the shower or the kitchen sink and having there be no water. Because of, a, because of a failure of the system, right? Occasionally, the plumber comes. He says, I need to replace this valve or that valve. I'm going to turn the water off. Then you turn the water on in the kitchen and you forget that the plumber's here and turned it off. But, but in the normal course of your day-to-day life, literally most Americans in their entire lives will never have their water off for even an hour. That's extraordinary. But that's not the world we're moving into. Not that your water service is going to fail, but that water systems are going to need a lot of help and we're going to need to think about water very differently and we're going to need the water managers the people who run the systems to talk to us the people who use them and they really really appreciate the way the stories in the book are told in a way that's accessible to ordinary people so that's one group i think it's had a huge impact on and i think it really has had a big impact in colleges and and universities in classrooms just because it's accessible. And there's not a lot of stories about science and engineering where you don't quickly get into the weeds of, of the math or the science or the equations. There are some equations in this book, but they're all in the footnotes. <laughs> and, and so this is a book you can read and think to yourself, wow, I might actually like to do the job that that woman's doing. That sounds cool. No one in the 10th grade thinks, I really want to be a water engineer and manage a water system. And yet 
we need people to, to want to do that. We need people to do it. And it turns out that in the world, that's going to be a really challenging job in the next 10 years, not a, not a routine go and just watch your computer screen and watch everything stay the same all day. And it's also going to be a job that's going to require cutting edge public policy, cutting edge ability to work with the public, cutting edge technology, which you understand and know how to manage. And so what has been a pretty staid, calm, quiet world where a good shift in the water plant was that it looked like the gauges were all, were all painted into their location and never moved, that world's about to change dramatically. And I think the big thirst has opened the window to that world for a whole you know, wave of, of people going through colleges and universities who would never have considered you know, water as a, as a place to find a career. Now, if a thousand kids read the book, how many turn around and say to their academic advisor or mom and dad, I'm going to be a water person? Who knows? But, but if only five or 10 out of a thousand sort of thought, let me go take some courses in this. This could be cool. Then, you know, for, for someone like me, that is great because you've, you've opened a world to people in an appealing, charming, compelling way that, that they didn't have any experience with. So I think those are the two places it's had an impact in, in the dramatic way. But, you know, you just never know. I mean, I, I think get notes from people all the time saying, I think about water differently because I've read the book. And, and that's one of the missions of the book. Well, I want to share with you, as an employer, I have experienced the latter that you just expressed uh, firsthand. People that were in college, they never thought about it, but they read your book and they started looking at ways that they could get involved in the water industry. And I'm a member of a group called the Association of Water Technologies, and I've heard that story over and over again. So absolutely, people are learning about the craft from your book. So I want to thank you for that. Well, I, I appreciate that. And that's, and that's right. That's, look, that's part of the point of the point of the book. And it's also part of the point of the Apollo book. I, I, I didn't go in to these books thinking that, but aerospace and water are similar a little bit. You might, as a kid, have enjoyed playing rockets or enjoyed playing with airplanes. These days, you can be on a robotics team in high school. Lots of high schools have robotics teams. There's big nationwide robotics competition, which is great and absolutely vital to sort of introducing people to ideas of engineering. Not many people in the 10th or 11th grade have any experience with aeronautics, astronautics, astronomy at all. Most high schools don't have a single astronomy class. So how in sophomore year, how can you say, I'm going to major in in hydroengineering. That's what I want to major in. I don't know anything about it, but I like the way the word is spelled. Um, And by the same token, you can't really say to yourself, I want to be an aeronautical engineer without having dipped your toe in somehow. And so, in fact, as, as, as I think... In the, in the big thirst, the heroes of the big thirst, in fact, are men and women on the front lines of water saying, this isn't going to work. We got to do this differently. Here's how. And the heroes of the race to the moon are the same thing. The, the, the engineers and scientists and factory workers who said, this is the way to do it. And I think, I think in the modern world, we need a lot more engineering talent than we've got available right now. I'm sure you know some of these numbers yourself, but the conventional wisdom in the world of water is that in the next five years, something like 50% of the people who manage water systems will reach retirement age. That's a that's a lot of people about to start collecting their pension and stop running the water system. And so we are ready for a fresh wave of tent. Um, but also we won't we won't we won't keep the water on if we don't get that down. One of the cities that you did research on was Las Vegas. What were some of the lessons learned there? You know, um, Las Vegas is this wonderful, ridiculous carnival of a town. And, and what's funny is that it's sort of, you know, it, it, in some ways, the, the, the image of Las Vegas is that it's a place where, where you can indulge your illusions and your fantasies, and then you go back to real life. Their attitude about water is exactly the same as their attitude about me or um, glamour or 
sex. It's the same. It's the same thing. Um, they. It looks like a place that treats water in a kind of cavalier, almost extravagant way. Almost every casino on the Las Vegas Strip, the big new casinos, the Bellagio has the second largest um, fountain in the world, and and eight-acre man-made lake in front of the Bellagio. Um, the Mirage has a lagoon with a, um, with a volcano in it. The Casino New York, New York, which is a little older, not quite as glamorous, reproduces New York Harbor with the actual water and the fireboat and the Statue of Liberty right out front. Uh, there's just water being splashed around everywhere. But it turns out that Las Vegas is one of the most water-smart cities in the country. And it's water smart in the following way. All of Las Vegas's water comes from a single, from a single source, uh, Lake Mead, which is created by Hoover Dam. And the amount of water that Las Vegas gets to take from Lake Mead was set back in 1935, when Las Vegas had about 3,000 people. There's 3 million people in Las Vegas now. So how do they make do? With the, with the allocation of water they received literally 80 years ago when the population was one one hundredth what, what it is now. Well, Las Vegas recycles, cleans and recycles every gallon of water that hits a drain anywhere in the city. They collect every single gallon of water into the wastewater system, and that water all goes into a high-tech water treatment plant, and the water is returned right to Lake Mead. You can actually go visit the little stream where the water comes dumping back into Lake Mead. Um, it's called the Las Vegas Wash. Uh, a wash is, uh, is traditionally a uh, stream or riverbed that's only um, got water in it when it rains, but the Las Vegas Wash has water flowing in it all the time. And um, the water they put back in Lake Mead is cleaner than the water they take out in the first place to clean and deliver to the city. And so they literally recycle 93, 94% of the water that's delivered to homes in the, in the city. And that's, that's extraordinary. And they've done, Las Vegas has really transformed the water culture of the city over 20 or 30 years. There's lots of examples of that. But for instance, it's now illegal to have a front lawn in Las Vegas. All new houses built, I think the year was 2000, since 2000, don't have grass in their front yards. They have landscaping, beautiful desert landscaping, but you cannot put down sod on your front lawn if your house was built in the year 2000 or after. And that's helped transform sort of the water use culture of Las Vegas. So they've done 30 or 40 things in the city to change the water use culture from one that really was cavalier in the early 1980s to here in 2020, you can go to Las Vegas as a, as a new water manager and, and see a hundred techniques of technology and human engineering, public policy, changing attitudes that you can then take home to your community, whether your community is a dry community like Las Vegas or, or somewhere in the, you know, in, in the Great Lakes region or, or the, or the mid-Atlantic of the East Coast, there's, there's techniques there for everyone to learn how to be smarter about water management. And so, so for me, I actually spent more than a month in Las Vegas trying to understand what had gone on there. And, and it's, a, it's a great American success story. It would not have an economy if it had not changed its water use, it would have run out of water. And um, it's also a place that has done things that the rest of us can, can learn. And so that's, that's, why, that's why I thought it was a, a great um, example in the book. You know, there's so many things that they do that our municipalities can duplicate. And I know some are, and definitely more and more are falling suit. But I'm sure we have listeners that are wondering, what are some of the common things that they can do at their home? So from all your research, what's some of the easy things that we can just do to make a difference? Well, look, the folks listening to this podcast are probably pretty smart already. When people ask that question, you know, like in a public talk, I always start the same place. I say, go find your water bill. And the first question you should ask is, 
how much water do we in this family use? How much water do we use in this apartment and or this house? What does that water cost us? Most people don't know the answer to either of those questions. You know, if you ask most people, how much milk do they use or how much coffee do they use? Eh, they, they, they wouldn't know precisely how many bags of uh, coffee beans they grind a week, but they'd have a general idea. You know, yeah, I, buy a, I, buy a, I have to buy a gallon of, of milk, you know, every three or four days, not quite twice a week. Most people in America have absolutely no idea how much water they use, and they also have no idea how much it costs because it's so cheap <laughs> that they don't, they don't need to pay attention. Like people will tell you, oh, yeah, my, my smartphone, my iPhone bill is, is 80, uh, 80 bucks a month, or I have three kids, my smartphone phone bill is, is 220 bucks a month. They have no idea what their water costs. So I say start there. Find out how much you use. Most ordinary people will be absolutely astonished at how much water their lives take because they, they aren't really clued in. Uh, dramatic and, and, and news, when I wrote the book back in, the, in, in 2011, 11, 12, 2013, average water in the country was 101 gallons per person. Now it is down to about 84 gallons a person. Not a huge change, but, and that's per day, 101 gallons per person per day. A family of four would be using 400 gallons a day for all purposes. Now it's down to a family of four uh, using about 320 gallons of water a day, 330 gallons of water a day. But that's a huge change. It's a 15% reduction in just 10 or 15 years. So I would say look at your water bill and then Agree that you're going to try and that you're going to pay attention and you're going to try and cut your own water use by 10%. And it's not that hard to cut your water use by 10% if you start thinking about it. The easiest way to cut your water use, of course, is not to flush the toilet when you pee. You know, what, you, can, you can pee in the toilet three or four times where you need to flush it. And that sort of, for some reason, makes people, you know, smile and roll their eyes. But we've now got, in a lot of places, we've got waterless urinals in, in men's restrooms. And that, of course, makes sense. It doesn't really need water to transport itself to the wastewater treatment plant. And a, a, an EPA study that came out just before the book came out sort of discovered that the main use of water inside homes, in inside use of water, the main use is, in fact, flushing the toilet. And, and so um, we've changed that a little bit with um, uh, toilets that use a little less water with each flush. I know um, President has sort of mocked that, but in fact, low-flow toilets now are really brilliantly designed. They work great. Um, you don't have to flush 16 or 18 times. You flush once, they work. Um, but that's a great way of saving water. And then the traditional things that people hear be a little aware. You know, we've got a timer in our shower, one of those, you know, sand timers that you turn over. Um, and it's just fun, you know, a couple times a week to see if you can beat the sand timer. I think the one thing in our shower is, is uh, three and a half or four minutes. You have to be very businesslike about your shower and not, and not fall into a reverie there in the nice water. But once or twice a week, that's fine. The, the amazing thing is that Americans don't pay that much attention to their water use, and yet water use in the country, the whole country's water use today in 2020 is less than it was in 1970. Not per person, total water use every day. The economy is triple the size it was in 1970, and we're using less water as a nation. And there, there's a bunch of reasons for that, which, which, which we talk about, but what that means is that every gallon of water does three times the work economically that that same gallon of water did in 1970. And that's huge. And nobody in America walks through their life and says, yeah, we, we save a lot of water. I feel just dried out all the time. We haven't actually had to, to inflict much on our lives. That's brilliant water-saving appliances, dishwashers and washing machines that actually do their jobs better than they did in 1970, but also use a third less or 50% or less water. That's toilets. And then to some degree, it's people paying attention. It's people only watering their lawns when they need to 
that's another really important arena, which is pay attention to how you use water outside. One of the big topics that we're facing here in the United States is Legionella and awareness about other waterborne pathogens. I'm curious what your research led you to conclude on that. And more specifically, why are other nations so much more advanced on topics as Legionella than we are here in the United States? Okay, let me let you can you can do what you want with this. I don't know that much about Legionella. So if other nations are more advanced than we are, I'm not clued into that. Waterborne diseases in the United States have a certain amount of impact, but it's particularly true in places with water systems that aren't as advanced as they should be, that are poorly run. Um, and of course, then there's then there's places like Flint where what's in the water isn't a pathogen but does incredible damage anyway. But in the United States, in fact, those are the exceptions. And most water systems, most municipal water systems, most water, you know, Legionella is one of those problems that occurs most often, I think, in big buildings where the, um, where the air handling and water systems aren't properly maintained. But if you think about the number of people who go work in sealed buildings every day with, with big HVAC systems and big water systems, it turns out not to be a big problem in the United States. And I think that's why we aren't that educated about it. We pay attention to what turns out to be a problem. And in fact, in the U.S., the water systems are by and large, and, and by that I mean 95, 97%, well-run, safe. They produce perfectly clean, usable drinking water. And the same is true of our, of our HVAC systems and our, and our huge consumers of water. 3% of 300 million people is still 9, 10, 12 million people at risk. That's a lot of people. Um, uh, who probably don't have the water and the water safety they should. And I'm not trying to trivialize that, but that's a manageable problem. It just needs attention. By and large, the, the, the real problems that Americans face are that our water systems aren't ready for climate change. We do not have communities that are built to handle delivering water and to managing either drought or flooding in, in ways that are going to overtake us in the next 5, 10, and 15 years. And so I think, I think the fact that we aren't quite as educated as other places is in part because, in general, the engineering of our water systems has been, has been brilliant and successful. Well, let me follow up with this. We've got the presidential elections coming up. What should we or what should they be debating on stage when it comes to water? I mean, look, it, to me, it's, it's very, very clear. You just have to look at what's going on every day in the country. Climate change is, is really the most urgent problem the country and the world faces. Um, it's the only problem that's a threat to, to, to rich people and poor people, to democracies and authoritarian regimes. It's a threat in, in this, on this continent but also in Asia and, 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 and Africa and Europe. And if we in the United States provide leadership, the world will follow us. That's a great tradition. And we're also the biggest economy in the world. And, and I, I don't know how this happened, but tackling climate change won't damage the economy. It won't be a damper on the economy. It will do just the opposite. I think we build something like 2 million new housing units in the country every year. I don't understand what the argument would be for those 2 million new housing units every single year having solar on them. I, in fact, think most single-family homes, most apartment buildings, most big buildings like Walmarts should have solar retrofitted on them. Will we be sorry if, you know, five years from now, 30% of the buildings in, in the United States have solar on top of them? There's no way we'd be, we'd be sorry. That's only good news. Look at what has happened to gas mileage. Uh, a gallon of gas, when I learned to drive, you know, would take your car 12 miles. 
a gallon of gas will take your car 35 or 40 miles now. Are we sorry <laughs> that, that, that we're not using more petroleum products? Um, of course not. And there's a million ways that we can tackle climate change. But that, to me, is what we should be talking about. We should be talking about how to train people who've been put out of work by technological advances in jobs and roles and occupations that we're going to need going forward. And, and the truth is we, we need to transform our economy and our day-to-day habits with literally the sense of urgency that going to the moon had. And we can, and we won't be sorry. You know, when, when, when he said on May 25th, 1961, let's go to the moon, it was literally impossible. Even the people at NASA who had told the president we could probably do it, they knew better than anyone that it was impossible. There's no rocket that could fly to the moon. There was no spaceship that could land on the moon. There were no spacesuits for, for astronauts to wear when they go to the moon. In fact, in 1961, a small computer was the size of five refrigerators lined up next to each other. That was one small computer. You couldn't even fly one refrigerator to the moon but you couldn't get to the moon without a computer. And in the end, they built a computer that was not much bigger than a briefcase that was, at the time, the smallest, fastest, most powerful computer that had ever been built. So in eight years, they took something that was impossible and they made it happen. We actually know what we need to do to tackle climate change. And most of the problems of climate change are water-related. You know, uh, Charleston, South Carolina floods, once a week now, it's used to five times a year, it floods 50 times a year now. That's changed in the last 10 years. Not, not with big rains, just high sunny tides, you know, king, what they call king tides, high tides on sunny days. Miami Beach, the same way. Norfolk, the same way. New York City, the same way. We've built our communities assuming a certain kind of weather, a certain kind of climate, a certain availability of water, and all of that is changing. And we need to jump on it. Water problems are all solvable. We know how to manage flooding. We know how to build communities back from the water so they don't get flooded. We know how to collect and store water so it's available in municipalities. We know how to clean it. We know how to get rid of flood water and rainwater. But we've built our communities with certain assumptions, and those assumptions aren't going to be true anymore. And one of the things that's true about water problems is they're all solvable. But not many of them are solvable in a hurry. If you're using too much water as a city, you can fix that problem relatively easily over five years. You cannot fix it at all over five weeks. Um, and, and, and so we need to sort of be very clear-eyed. Water does not respond, as I like to say, water does not respond to wishful thinking. You have to look clearly at what your problems are, and then you need a plan for fixing them. And then you can fix them over five or 10 years, and people will join you. Americans love the rally to the sort of impossible cause. So I, I think to the degree that, that, the, um, that we're worried about the economy, that we're worried about um, uh, access to work and people having good jobs and people having productive lives that they feel good about, I think climate change actually can be an accelerator of all the things that are good if we tackle. Charles, you're talking to an audience of thousands of industrial water treaters, so they indeed can do a big impact. What's the one message you want to leave with them? Just to bring it back to, to the book, there's a story in the book about a town called Toowoomba, Australia. And um, in the middle, not of the current drought, has all, a lot of lessons in what's going on there now, but the last drought, which lasted 10 years, and I was in Australia for a month in the middle of that drought in about uh, 2011. Toowoomba's uh, reservoir was at 9%. It was 91% empty in the middle of the drought. And the federal government of Australia offered the city of Toowoomba, which is the largest inland city in the country, a high-tech water treatment plant to solve their problem, to reuse their water, clean their wastewater, return it to the reservoir, and give them a little bit of a cushion against what was going on in the country then. And the mayor 
at the time, who, who was a bit of a big personality, was so excited at this possibility that he announced at a women's club meeting in Toowoomba that, we were, that they were all going to start drinking out of the toilet. And from that moment forward, the campaign to get this water treatment plant and start fixing the water problem was completely off the rails. And the, the very clear lesson of what happened in Toowoomba, if you, if you read that chapter, I think it, it's so clear. You can get the problem right, and you can get the analysis right, and you can even get the solution right when it comes to water. You can understand the problem, understand how to think it through, figure out what the right solution is. But if you get the conversation wrong, if you don't manage how the public understands the problem and the analysis and the solution, it won't matter that you got the other things right. Scientists and engineers and utility people tend to look at sort of talking to the public as, a, as something they're not that interested in and historically have been that important to making sure everything goes well. Here's the headline, the flashing, the flashing neon headline on the all news cable channel, the breaking news. The breaking news is you have to know how to talk about the problem effectively in public or you won't get to present the problem the analysis and the solution. If you don't get the conversation right, you're not going to get to solve the problem. And so I think the ability to think through how to talk to the public about what's going on, how to have a conversation with them, how to bring us into that conversation, not just once, but over and over and over again, is really important. We see that in the simplest examples. I live in a neighborhood in, in Washington where they've installed 16 rain gardens to try and manage um, stormwater rainfall without putting it into the sewer system, which is, of course, really brilliant. That's what you want to do. You want to put the water back in the ecosystem, not in the sewer system. And, and, and Washington is one of those communities that's got the you know, federal oversight. We, we pollute the river because our, our sewer system overflows. It costs billions of dollars to, to manage that. Rain gardens are an inexpensive very effective way of reducing what goes into storm drain. But they didn't present the rain garden project to the neighborhood I live in. I've lived here almost seven years. The rain gardens are smart. I know what they are. People are baffled by them. They're taking up, you know, 16, maybe 24 parking spaces. They each take up one or two curb parking space space. They're, they're, they're puzzling. It's not clear what their purpose is. Well, they mismanaged the conversation. They didn't even have a conversation about them. Um, and that's a tiny little example of the, the water community in Washington, the people running the water utility, exactly what they were doing. They came to the right conclusion. They came up with one of the right solutions. It's actually an inexpensive, tax-saving, water-saving solution, reduces pollution, does everything you want it to do. But they didn't tell us what they were doing. They just built these things right, right out in front of our homes. And people were really, really upset. So that's a tiny little example. My advice to the, to the, to the people who run water systems of different kinds is you can't put what you want to do on a piece of paper the size of a three-by-five card and put it in the water bill once or even twice and expect people to know what you're up to. You have to go out, go out to the community use neighborhood listservs, talk to people, have meetings, present what you want to do, ask them for action, and then listen. Listen because as water people know better than anybody, people's access to water and the way other people manage their water causes a lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotional response. The emotional response isn't beside the point. It's the hurdle to getting the problem solved. And so you need to understand the emotional response, ask questions about it, listen to it, and then think about how to uh, get people to appreciate that you're actually solving their problem, not irritating them or making it worse. Well, I love that answer. And I think the conversation that we've had today is going to inspire a lot of people that can make a lot of change that, and give them some traction on what they can do. But I want to thank you not only for writing The Big Thirst, but coming on Scaling Up H2O and sharing a little bit more of that story. Oh, I, you asked such great questions, and I, I appreciate the chance to talk 
to this audience. And, and I'm easy to find if people have questions, if they tackle the book, if they see something and, and they're curious or, or want to challenge something or ask a follow-up, my email address is out there all over the place. Just shoot me a note and I'll be, I'll be happy to respond. And you can even put my, my contact information in the show notes if you want. We'll be happy to do that. Charles, again, great honor to have you on the show. Uh, I just love to be able to interview people that I have read their books. I've had them on my bookshelf for a while. Uh, I've used them to refer to items when I'm talking with people. I take quotes out of them. So really cool to be able to talk with Charles. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I get to have that privilege because you out there in the Scaling Up Nation are listening to the podcast, and I personally want to thank you for doing that. Because you do that, I get to do this, and I truly love this. Of course, the more people we have listening will help our reach to find other guests. So as always, my ask for you is to help me find some new subscribers to the show. So if you're talking to another water trader or somebody you feel will have interest in scaling up H2O, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And if you have already done these things, I would love it if you left a comment on whatever podcast player you are using because that ranks us higher in the search engines of those podcast players and it makes it easier for people to find us. The bigger the Scaling Up Nation gets, the more Scaling Up H2O is able to offer. Now, Nation, in just a few short weeks, the Association of Water Technologies was supposed to hold their annual conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, if you have not heard already, there are limitations on how many people can get together in social gatherings, and AWT is now holding their conference virtually. I know I'm disappointed. I was hoping to see many of you there like I do each and every year. But AWT is offering some new things with the virtual convention, trying to make sure that it is as captivating and informative as it can be. So as they let me know what these items are, I will be sure to pass those items along to you so you know what you can get from the virtual convention. As always, keep listening to Scaling Up H2O to stay up to date on news about our industry. Folks, there's no doubt about it. These are different times, but different doesn't have to mean bad. Our collective job is to raise the bar of the water treatment industry. We just might have to find new ways that we do that during this time. Scale Up Nation, it is my hope that you stay safe out there and have a great week, folks. On episode 136, we gave you an inside look at what happens in the Rising Tide Mastermind. Friend of show Mark Lewis was asked why he joined the Rising Tide Mastermind, and here is his reply. When the Mastermind group was introduced, I said, let me get in on this thing. I want to be a part of this. I want to learn how to be more productive and uh, make my days to where I can enjoy my family time and separated from my work time. And so I like what Trace does. And so I said, I want to be, I want to do things a lot like Trace. So let me, let me figure out what he's doing. So that's why I joined the group. Mark, thanks so much for your comment. And I really appreciate that you like how I handle things and get things done. But I have to fess up. Here's the secret. I've had a lot of help being able to negotiate all of the different tasks that I'm asked to do and make sure that they get done. And that wasn't all me. That was because I decided years ago, almost 10 years ago, to join a mastermind group. And I've been meeting with that group on a regular basis since that time. Now, what we do on that group is the same thing we're doing in the Rising Tide Mastermind. We are helping each other get further faster. We're helping each other with our issues We're giving each other tools that maybe the other person doesn't have, 
and we're letting each other ask each other for help and we're giving help. Folks, that's what a mastermind is all about. And I truly feel that we are not built to do life alone. And the secret to being successful is getting with people that can help you to that success. I urge you to see if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to learn more. And if this group is right for you, please schedule an appointment with me. If this group is not right for you, please find one that is. Again, we are not built to do life alone.